welcome you to week three of our fall series called The Faces of Sin. <clears throat> For this series, we're, we're uh, spending 10 weeks looking at how different um, passages and stories in the Bible talk about this thing called sin. And uh, this morning, uh, we're going to look at how sin manifested itself in the life of uh, a man named Saul, who was the very first uh, king to sit on the throne of God's people Israel. In the Old Testament, he's the king that immediately preceded David. And it, you'll see in a moment here, Saul's life, when you, you know, we can kind of survey it start to finish. Um, when Saul is first introduced, he is, he's just a picture of potential, and he had every chance to succeed. Uh, but his life, as it unfolds, it just becomes a series of tragedies. He, um, he's just a guy that couldn't get out of his own way, and, uh, and he winds up being a shell of what he otherwise could have been. And what we're looking at today, I'm going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we're looking really at the moment in Saul's life. There is a singular moment in his life that really proved to be the beginning of the end. It's a failure that he never really recovered from. And, uh, you know, in hearing that, um, I always try to think, well, what would I, how would I hear these things if I was on the other side of me? And hearing that that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, you know, maybe you're thinking, that sounds awfully depressing. Why are we talking about that? And the answer is, how dare you question me, all right? I'm the pastor. No, that's not the real answer. It's not the real answer. The real answer is, uh, I've heard this said, and, um, and I think it's true, uh, smart people learn from their own mistakes, Wise people learn from other people's mistakes. Uh, so what, the goal of today's teaching, this is really the goal of this whole series. Why are we talking about this thing called sin? The hope is that we would dig into these stories, we'd get beneath the surface, we'd understand what's really going on, we'd see ourselves in these stories in the hope that we would develop a heart of wisdom and be able to avoid the things that, that uh, these people have fallen into. So today I'm in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we'll be in verses 10 through 26. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my instructions. So Samuel became angry and cried out to the Lord all night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up to confront Saul, but it was reported to Samuel, Saul went to Carmel, where he set up a monument for himself. Then he turned around and went down to Gilgal. When Samuel came to him, Saul said, May the Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. Samuel replied, Then what is this sound of sheep and cattle I hear? Saul answered, The troops brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep and cattle in order to offer a sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we destroyed. Stop, exclaimed Samuel. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, he replied. Samuel continued, Although you once considered yourself unimportant, have you not become the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and then sent you on a mission and said, go and completely destroy the sinful Amalekites. Fight against them until you have annihilated them. So why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush on the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul answered. I went on the mission the Lord gave me. I brought back Agag, king of Amalek, and I completely destroyed the Amalekites. The troops took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was set apart for destruction, 
to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Then Samuel said, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Saul answered Samuel, I've sinned. I've transgressed the Lord's command and your words because I was afraid of the people I obeyed them. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin and return with me so I can worship the Lord. Samuel replied to Saul, I will not return with you because you rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. This is God's word. So the goal here is to dig into this story, really understand what's going on, and, and hopefully avoid it in our own lives. Uh, to do that, there's really just three, three things we have to cover this morning. Uh, first off, we need to look at what exactly Saul did wrong. Secondly, uh, what led to it. And thirdly, how, can, how we can avoid the trap that Saul fell into in this story. So the first thing we have to cover, starting at the surface here, is right, what exactly did Saul do wrong? Evidently, it was a really big deal, so what was it? Uh, Saul, as the first king of Israel, it did not have one before him. He'd been given a command by the Lord, and in verse 18, Samuel, who was the prophet of God, kind of the mouthpiece of God, he uh, gives you a synopsis of what exactly Saul was told to do here. Verse 18 says, uh, then sent you on a mission and said, go, here it is, go and completely destroy the sinful Amalekites, fight against them until you have annihilated them. So let me just pause here. Uh, When modern people read that, obviously that kind of causes us to shudder a little bit this idea of God commissioning that sort of thing. But I, I just ask you to consider, the Amalekites were a, um, just a famously violent and brutal people. They were kind of famous for their atrocities against humanity, things like genocide, uh, infanticide, um, <clears throat> terrible forms of oppression, raping, pillaging, you name it. And um, the, the kind of evil that was coming from Amalek is not the kind of evil you negotiate with. You just put an end to it, and that requires force. And so what God had essentially done is he'd come to Saul and and the nation of Israel and he said, I've had enough of their atrocities against humanity, and so you're going to be my instrument of divine justice. But what's so important to understand is that when God commissioned Saul to completely destroy the Amalekites, he commissioned him to lead Israel in waging war in a way that was uh, different and, and really holy. Um, as opposed to the surrounding nations of the ancient Near East. So the way that it worked back then, and actually I think you could make a strong case that this is how every human nation, human kingdom, and human history works. They talk a lot about truth and justice, but at the end of the day, kingdoms go to war with other kingdoms and nations against nations to enrich themselves. Uh, They might talk about how the truth is on or whatever else, but at the end of the day... They go to war, you certainly saw this in the ancient Near East, in order to enrich themselves by acquiring things like land or resources or slaves or whatever. So when God said to Saul, in no uncertain terms, you are to completely annihilate them, this is God's way of saying, you are are not to enrich yourself through this military endeavor. This is not about uh, enriching yourself. This is about enacting divine justice. What Saul actually did is recorded for us in verse 9, which says, Saul and the troops spared Agag and the best of the sheep, cattle, and choice animals, 
as well as the young rams and the best of everything else. They were not willing to destroy them, but they did destroy all the worthless and unwanted things. Um, so in taking Agag and essentially everything that was valuable uh, from this, this kingdom of, of the Amalekites, what Saul is doing is essentially uh, the same thing that every other nation did. He's going to war to elevate his platform and enrich himself. And so, you know, kind of boil it down, he has essentially adopted the values of the nation that God had called him to destroy. So uh, the reason I spent time on this in the front end, and we'll move on after this, is so that you would see this isn't just about, uh, you know, Saul kind of missed some details. This isn't Saul, you know, he got like 75% of it right, but he, you know, I guess he, he, he didn't read the fine print. That's not what this is. This is Saul as Israel's first king leading them uh, in a direction that would eventually cause Israel to be lockstep in line with the value systems of the surrounding nations. For that, God says, okay, you forfeited the right to sit on the throne of my people. That's what Saul did wrong. Now, you might find that um, interesting, but I'm going to pause here and just highlight nobody here finds that uh, relevant because no one here has been commissioned by God to annihilate an ancient Near Eastern people group. Even if you think you have, I assure you, you have not been called to do that. Uh, See me afterwards if you want to run that one by me, okay? Um, However, this story becomes like one of the most relevant stories in the entire Bible when we go just a little bit deeper and we ask the question, okay, if that's what Saul did wrong, well, what exactly led to it? I, I touched on this in the intro. When you look at... Saul's kind of uh, character arc, as recorded in the Bible, it's, it's, it's amazing how much he changed and how, how unlike uh, himself he is here as opposed to when he started. So when, uh, when we first meet Saul in uh, chapter 9 of this same book, 1 Samuel, um, Samuel comes into his life and speaking on behalf of God, he talks to, to Saul about these great things that God has for him. This is how Sa- uh, uh, Saul responds in verse, um, verse 21 of chapter 9. So Samuel has just said, you know, Saul, God's got these great things. It says in verse 21, Saul responded, Am I not a Benjaminite from the smallest of Israel's tribes, and isn't my clan the least important of all the clans of the Benjaminite tribe? So why have you said something like this to me? Now, what I point out to you there is Saul's response actually sounds a lot like King David. He seems like a really humble guy. I mean, that's certainly a whole lot better than a guy that, that you know, when Samuel comes to him, he says, oh, I knew it. I knew God had great things for somebody as awesome as me. Saul is the opposite of that. He's got a lot of humility about him. He's, he's very unsure of himself. He's the kind of guy that you, you want to see him succeed. You want to root for him. And a chapter after this, in chapter 10, we're told that when it came time for Samuel to bring him up, show him to the people, and anoint him as king in front of the people that God had commissioned him to lead... He is so terrified of God's call on his life that he's, he's, he runs away and he hides in the luggage. Admittedly, not the most inspiring picture of leadership we've ever seen, but the point is, I think it's a lot better than the alternative. So the question is, how did Saul get from point A to point B? And what, what I mean is, <clears throat> how do you explain Saul at the beginning of his, you know, kind of his entrance into leadership and, and everything that God had called him to? How does Saul go from being a guy that is so unsure of himself, he's running from God's call in his life, to a guy that's so full of himself, he's flagrantly disregarding God's call in his life? How do you get from point A to point B? And the answer really boils down to what we're going to be spending our time talk about, talking about this morning. 
The way that Saul got from point A to point B is because of the presence of something in his life called self-deception. That not only explains how Saul was able to do some of the, the most foolish and most destructive things in his life, self-deception exp- exp- explain, explains how all of us are able to do things that cause us to wake up one day and say, what happened to me? So when you talk about self-deception, I think we have to define it first. Self-deception is the human heart's ability to know something at one level but not know it at another level because we don't actually want to know it. Let's say that one more time. Self-deception is, is, I'll make this personal, it's your and my ability to know something at one level but not really know it at another level because at the end of the day, we don't want to know it. So I remember years ago, I had a conversation with an older gentleman um, he doesn't come to this church, so I don't want anybody thinking I'm, you know, using you as a sermon analogy. Years ago, I had a conversation with him because he had what he thought was a, and this is kind of like a behind-the-scenes look into what it's like to be a pastor. He thought he had a supernatural vision one night, and he figured, hey, you're a man of the cloth. Can you help me figure out what it meant? Uh, by the way, that's not a class they teach at Moody Bible Institute, so I was as unprepared for that conversation as, as you might feel. So I asked him a couple questions and got the details, and uh, I, I gave him my standard piece of advice, which I find to be just universally good advice for people, no matter what they bring to you. I said, okay, here's what I think. Either what you saw um, is from God, that's option one. Option two, what you saw was not from God, uh, but conclusion, point three, and this one's important, either way, you should get ready to meet God. I think you'll find that regardless of what the situation is in life, that is just good advice. All of us should get ready to meet God. And so the conversation became about whether or not he was ready. And uh, he was telling me about, you know, a number of the good things that he'd done in his life. I mean, specific examples of ways that he had helped people and ways that he had, you know, done good to the community or to individuals. And, and so I listened to that and I just explained what, you know, the Bible teaches. And I said, hey, but, you know, that's, that's awesome. And, you know, God you know, would say that all of that stuff is good. However, the Bible does teach that we can't earn our salvation through our good works. That's the you know, whole reason Jesus came to die for us. If we could earn it ourselves, we wouldn't need him. And so he kind of said, well, no, hang on a second. I don't, I don't want you to think that I'm you know, thinking that I can earn my own salvation. And th- then the conversation took a turn. And please believe me when I say I'm not the type of guy that would you know, beat somebody over the head with the Bible. And how dare you think you're a good person, you wicked, filthy, rotten, all that kind of stuff. That's just not, I don't find that effective. I don't think that's persuasive. So completely unprompted, the conversation took this turn, and he started to talk about his children, who were all obviously adults at this point in his life. <clears throat> and he talked to me, and I'm sure this is going to hit home with a number of us. He talked to me about the regret that he feels to this day over the father that he had been to them when they were young. And in talking about that, he started to cry right in front of me. And the reason that conversation had such an impact on me is because in the span of just 20, 30 minutes, uh, this guy went from being so certain that he was good enough to breaking down crying in front of me because he knew he wasn't. And you zoom out from that and you find yourself asking the question, okay, so which is it? Do we think that we're good enough or do we know that we're not? And you hear me do this a lot and I'm sorry to do it to you again, but if you were to ask that question of the Bible... If you were to ask the Bible, well, what is it? Do people think that they're good enough or do they know that they're not good enough? The answer of the Bible is simply yes. 
That's what we're talking about when we talk about self-deception. It's every single human heart's nagging tendency to kind of know things at one level but not know them at another, another level because we don't really want to know them. <clears throat> I'm bringing this up because that's exactly what you see in Saul, specifically in this exchange with Samuel. You know, Samuel enters into Saul's life and, uh, you know, he's flagrantly disregarded this command that God has given him to totally destroy the Amalekites. And Saul begins by saying, hey, I've, I've totally kept the Lord's command. And Samuel, looking at the evidence, literally the sheep, you just kind of picture the scene, like Saul's surrounded by this cattle that he has obviously not destroyed. And Samuel's saying, Saul, what, what are you talking about? It, I, I found this in a commentary this week. The, the passage is almost meant to be a little bit comical if you read it in the Hebrew, because what it literally reads is Saul begins by saying, I've listened to the Lord. And Samuel says, then why am I listening to the cattle? It's like the evidence is right in front of us that you have not done the thing that you're convinced that you did. And so then the conversation becomes, well, the troops spared some of them, but we killed a lot of them, right? That's good. And then that turns into, well, yeah, we did spare some of them, but we were going to get around to sacrificing them to the Lord. And you zoom out and you th- he's just, Saul is a mess. You can't reason with this guy. You can't have a conversation with this guy. You can't work with this guy. He is completely locked up in his own self-deception. He knows that he hasn't obeyed, but, you know, on another level, he doesn't really know that he hasn't obeyed because he doesn't want to know. He doesn't want to face himself. He doesn't want to get honest about his actual situation in life. That's self-deception. Now, and and like I said, this is the moment in his life that he never recovers from it. You saw it at the beginning. This is the moment that God says, I'm sorry, you forfeited the right to be king of my people. Saul never recovers from this. So obviously, this is the Bible's way of telling us self-deception is a real big deal. It might not be the worst thing that we do, but it leads to the worst things that we do. And so the question is, how do you know if you are being self-deceived? The answer is, you don't, because you are, wait for it, deceiving yourself. So please appreciate the situation that I'm in here. The more that you think through this teaching, it's, it's almost like, well, then what is actually worth saying here if we all struggle with this, but nobody actually knows it? What are we supposed to talk about here? Here's where this passage gets, at the same time, extremely useful, but extremely painful. Because when you look at this this dialogue between Saul and Samuel, it serves as as a, like I said, a very helpful, very useful, but a very painful diagnostic tool that will show you and I the signs and symptoms of self deception in a person's life. And I'm just gonna pull three of them out of this exchange, but before I do, here's what this means. If you have you know, the, the, the security or the vulnerability or whatever you want to call it to look into your own heart and you see anything in your own heart that we can see in Saul's here, that means that self-deception right now is at work in your life. If there's smoke, there's fire. So what are the signs and the symptoms of self-deception according to this conversation between Saul and Samuel? I, I, I'll give, give you three. The first one is blame shifting. Look at verses 14 and 15. Watch how this plays out. So Saul has just said, hey, I did the thing. And Samuel replied, then what is this sound of sheep and cattle I hear? Saul answered, "Uh, the troops brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep and the cattle in order to offer a sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we destroyed. So first off, Saul's the king of Israel, and he completely fails to take any kind of ownership whatsoever for what has happened here, and just effortlessly and naturally throws all of his soldiers that just laid their lives on the line for him, throws all of them under the bus. Now, if that's all Saul did, that's ugly enough in and of itself, 
But what he does here is actually even more disgusting than that. Because right after he throws them under the bus, he says, yeah, they're the ones that kept some of the cattle alive. They disobeyed. But then look at the other end of that in verse 15. But he says, the rest we destroyed. So when it comes to uh, accepting responsibility, yeah, they're the ones that did it. When it comes to taking credit for whatever good stuff actually happened, yeah, that, that's, that, now that's a we thing. Now I'm a part of that. What you have here is essentially a master class in how to lose everybody's respect. Now, I could, I could, you know, kind of end this here and move on to the next symptom, but because the whole purpose of this series is about holding up a mirror in front of us and helping us see ourselves in this story, uh, let's take an opportunity to do that. <laughs> I just want to invite you. See, it's an invitation. Now it's not offensive, right? I just want to invite you, in light of what we're seeing in Saul's life here, to ask yourself a question. <clears throat> And I'll make it personal. When is the last time that you did what Saul was completely incapable of doing here? Let me ask that a little differently. When is the last time that you remember taking radical ownership of something that you did wrong without excuse or explanation? When is the last time that you remember doing that? If you cannot remember the last time that you did that, there are only two explanations. Either you literally cannot remember the last time that you did something wrong. <laughs> it's option one. Option two is you are right now laboring under self-deception. I'm just going to let the Holy Spirit of God do his work there. We're going to move on, all right? There's the first symptom, blame shifting. Next up, you have fake religiosity, all right? Uh, I don't know if you caught this, but right after throwing the soldiers under the bus, um, you notice Saul goes on to say what the, what the reason was. You know, first off, he tries to say that he obeyed. Well, next he's trying to say, well, here's the reason I didn't obey kind of thing. He says, the reason they spared the cattle was, quote, in order to offer a sacrifice, listen to this, to the Lord your God. So you can kind of hear this attempt to manipulate Samuel here. This is basically Saul saying, Samuel, you're a prophet of God. He's your God. Well, the cattle was for him. You should be able to co-sign on this, all right? Let's not make a big deal out of something that can, you know, end up good for both of us. This is what this is. And, and when you phrase it this way, I think you'll realize this is a human thing. This is not a Saul thing. This is the tendency to justify what you know you're doing wrong by holding up and hiding behind what you know you're doing right, or what at least you planned to do right. Uh, you see this all over the place in the gospel accounts with the Pharisees, uh, and I think the modern-day equivalent of this is kind of this mindset that says, yeah, I know that there's some things that I'm not listening to God about. I know that there's some areas of my life that I haven't really given Him control over. I'm kind of not, you know, surrendering those to Him. But look at all the good stuff I'm doing. You know, I do try to make it to church. I do try to read my Bible and pray. I give money when I see a GoFundMe. I try to volunteer, give back to the community. I'm trying to be a good person, all right? And I'll just point this out because this is what Samuel points out in Saul. That kind of mindset that tries to excuse what you're doing wrong by holding up what you're doing right, that reveals that, you, that you're thinking about God, follow me here, in transactional rather than relational terms. Now, here's what I mean by that. And to explain this, I want to use as vivid an analogy as I, could, as I could think of. And even if this comes across funny, I assure you, this is not meant to be a joke, all right? 
Imagine, thought experiment, a man meeting his wife at the altar and making a promise before God and man he's going to love her until death parts them. And then they get home from the honeymoon, and just a few weeks into the marriage, it's discovered that he's having multiple affairs. So his wife finds out. She's devastated. She confronts him. And please hear me. This is not meant to be a joke. But can you imagine how ridiculous it would be if the husband's response was, okay, yeah, but I did the dishes last night. You know, did you see the grass out front? Looks pretty good. You know, I just mowed it. You see that trash being faithfully taken out to the road every Sunday night or whatever it is? How ridiculously inappropriate of a, res- a response like that would reveal that that man simply does not understand the dimension that he's in. And I'm bringing this up because that's exactly what Samuel is trying to get Saul to understand here. The most famous part of this passage, when Samuel comes to Saul and he says this, this iconic phrase, to obey is better than sacrifice, if we can just kind of modern day terminology that, that's Samuel's way of saying, hey, Saul, it doesn't matter to God if you did the dishes. It doesn't matter to God if you can point to a few good things. Every single human being that has ever turned oxygen into carbon dioxide has at least by accident done a few good things during their time here. Samuel's saying that doesn't matter to God. And the fact that that you're even thinking that way just reveals you never really understood who he was. You never really understood what he was after because he was never after your stuff. He was after your heart. Even if you managed to lay a few animals on an altar, he wasn't after the sacrifice. He was after you, Saul. And that is something that people who practice what we're calling fake religiosity never really get around to understanding. And so before we move on, kind of second diagnostic tool here, let me just ask you, if, if you were to get real honest with yourself... Do you see in yourself this tendency to justify what you're doing wrong by holding up and kind of hiding behind what you're doing right? If so, that's the second sign that we can see here of self-deception. <clears throat> but, but thirdly, and I actually think this one is the worst one, so I saved the worst for last. The last symptom is self-absorption. So when, when Saul is finally backed into a corner and he's dead to rights and there's no kind of manipulating or weaseling his way out of this, twice he, he says the words, I have sinned. Twice in this account he says that. But at the end of the story, when he realizes that that's not going to get him out of this, we see uh, the real reason for his apparent repentance. You see it in verse 30. And you just listen to this. He says, I've sinned. He's speaking to Samuel. I've sinned. Please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Please honor me. What that request reveals is that for for Saul, the only thing that he ever cared about, the only thing that was ever on his mind was what his sin did to him. That's it. Now, let me just pause here and and point something out. And maybe your mind has already gone here, but this is where my mind went when I was putting this together. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, we see an account of a, a, a failure in King David's life, who was the next king of Israel. We see an account of a failure in David's life that in every way, shape, and form is quantifiably worse than Saul's failure here. I'm sure you've probably heard this story before. It's David's failure with Bathsheba, where he takes another man's wife who wound up up being one of his most loyal soldiers. He essentially has the man murdered. A child winds up dying. It It is absolutely the low point of David's life, and yet God forgives him. That was a failure, but that failure was not final for David like this was for Saul. And so that raises the question, well, what, how does that work? Is God just kind of arbitrarily picking and choosing who he's deciding to forgive? And, not, and that's not what's happening at all. Here's, here's what's happening. If you go to 2 Samuel chapter 12, you'll find 
This is the difference. When Nathan the prophet, who was kind of like his own personal Samuel, when Nathan the prophet confronts Saul about his sin, the only words that come out of David's mouth, this is exactly what he says. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And people sometimes hear that and they get, you know, you can misinterpret that and, and, and say, well, what about all the other people David sinned against? You know, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What about the child? What about all the loved ones? What about, a, you're missing the point. What, what, what we're meant to see there, specifically compared to Saul's words here in 1 Samuel 15, is listen to how personal David's confession is. David doesn't just say, I've broken the law. David says, I have sinned against the one who gave us that law. Here's the point. David understood this is the fundamental difference between him and Saul. David understood that sin, at the end of the day, it does not simply break God's rules and cost us. It breaks God's heart and costs him. Until we understand that, until we understand the personal nature of our sin, that it actually grieves, it actually wounds God, then the only thing we'll ever really be sorry for, even though, of course, who wants to admit this out loud, until we understand what David knew, then the only thing we'll ever really be sorry for is how our sin makes us feel. That's it. And so as long as there's consequences, then we'll modify our behavior. But the moment those consequences go away, our repentance goes away with it. And that, think about that. That really explains why so many people, you see it in record, uh, recorded in Scripture, but of course, we've seen this in other people's lives. We've seen it in our own lives. This explains why so often we kind of do something and it costs us, and we say, I'm never going to do that again because it makes us feel bad or it costs us you know, external consequences. But the moment those consequences go away, we go right back to it over and over and over and over again. You cannot change that way. And the point is, David's repentance wasn't like that. He was not just sorry for what his sin cost him. He was sorry for what his sin cost God. And Saul never got there. Specifically, this phrase in verse 30 shows that for Saul, it was never about a relationship with God. It was never about living this life of, of thankfulness and faithfulness to a God that set him on the throne of his people purely as an act of grace. It was never about that. For Saul, it was about his image. It was at his platform. It was about him, self-absorption. And so again, before we move on to kind of the final move today, I just want to take a moment and ask you, here, here's, what, here's what this particular idea forces us to ask about ourselves. And again, let me make this as personal as possible. When you find yourself backed into a corner like Saul was here, when you're completely dead to rights and there really is no option except for you to admit defeat and apologize, all that kind of stuff, the question that Saul's story forces you and I to ask ourselves is what's the real reason for your repentance? What's the real reason? Because what we're seeing here in the life of Saul is that it is entirely possible to say the words, I have sinned. It's entirely possible to, you know, admit that you've done something wrong. It's entirely possible to look like you're repenting, not because of anything other than you just don't like the way your sin makes you feel. And so the question is, when you repent, is it, is it out of this awareness of what your sin has done to God and other people, or is it just because you want the consequences to go away? And I realize that's a question that at the end of the day, the only people that can really know, know that is you and God, me and God. We can have everybody else fooled. We just can't fool ourselves. We know the answer to that at the end of the day. But if you, if you can look inside your own heart and see the, the latter, that it's really just about the, the consequences. It's really about what it costs me. It's really about how it makes me feel. That's self-absorption. And according to this story, it's the final sign of self-deception. 
By this point, by the way, nobody should feel good about themselves. So if that's where you're at, you're right where you should be. Nobody should be thinking, oh, I'm nailing this right now. The point of that, the point of these symptoms, the reason it's laid out like this for us in Scripture is to show us that, okay, the same stuff at work in Saul is at work in all of us. I would say, actually, if you're not at that point by this moment in the teaching, I don't know that anybody can help you. You are fully self-deceived. But the question after all of this is, is simply, well, then how can we avoid this trap that ended Saul? How can we avoid falling into this? And the answer is, we have to understand what the heart of this is. It's one thing to understand, okay, here's the bad thing that Saul did, and he did it because of self-deception, and here are the symptoms. But the question that this whole story is begging is, well, what is the heart of self-deception? Where does it actually come from? Why can't we admit the truth about ourselves? What's really going on in the human heart? If we can understand that, then we can begin to change. And you find an answer in this passage that comes to us in two parts. First off, in verse 12, notice it says, Early in the morning, Samuel got up to confront Saul, but it was reported to Samuel, Saul went to Carmel where he set up a monument for himself. That's bad news. That's almost like a throwback. You've heard the story of the Tower of Babel where all the nations of the earth gathered to build a monument, a tower to themselves, to make a great name for themselves. That's exactly what Saul's doing here. That's a bad sign. He's got this need to run around and build monuments for himself. But then in verse 17, we see really where this is coming from. In verse 17, it says, Samuel continued. He's speaking to Saul here. He says, although you once considered yourself unimportant, Although you once considered yourself unimportant, have you not become the leader of the tribes of Israel? And then listen to this phrase, the Lord anointed you king over Israel. Now, understand what Samuel's trying to do here. <clears throat> this is where this, this gets almost like psychological. This is Samuel coming into Saul's life, you know, trying to have an intervention for this guy that is just off the rails. And he's saying, Saul, would you, would you, just, would you stop long enough to just think? Saul, you came from utter insignificance, and you used to know it. We even looked at Saul's response. You know, when God first called Samuel to come into his life and say, Saul, you're going to be a king, his first response, I've come from the least important clan of the least important tribe. Why on earth would God come to somebody like me? This is Samuel trying to call him back to that. He's saying, Saul, you used to know how insignificant you were, that you had a resume that nobody's looking twice at. And yet, what Samuel's saying is, and yet when God looked at you, he saw a king. Despite your resume, God made you king, anointed you king. He raised you to the highest office in all the land over his people. It wasn't because of what you did or, or didn't do. It was purely an act of his grace. The point there is that once upon a time, Saul, you knew that you were insignificant in yourself, but that you had greatness in God's eyes, that God had given you glory, that God was the real source of your significance. And the point is, somewhere along the line, that stopped being enough for Saul. And so he started looking out into the world for something that can only be found in God. And so here it is. Here's the, here, what this is showing us. Here's the real heart of, of self-deception. All self-deception, not just in Saul's life, but in every single human heart ever since sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, all self-deception stems from our tendency to try to create an identity for ourselves outside of God. And let me phrase that a little bit differently. All self-deception stems from our tendency to try to go out and get honor and glory and significance and a sense of self-worth in something other than God and his love for us. Now, here's, here's how Tim Keller, just real succinctly, here's how he describes this in his book, Hope in Times of Fear. He says, any identity 
that is not rooted in Jesus' unmerited love, whether it's a traditional identity based on family approval or a Western identity that's based on individual achievement. He says any such identity is fragile and it leads to denial and a lack of self-awareness. So what I want to do, let's read this concept back into Saul's life and see how, how, how utterly relatable he is. So here, here's how this played out for Saul. Saul, according to Samuel's words, he had forgot how great he was in the eyes of God. He, he, he forgot that he, got, he had his significance and his value in his relationship with God. Got away from that. Forgot about that. That stopped being enough for him. And yet he was still desperate for that like every human heart is. So he started looking for that out in the world. So when God came to Saul and said, I want you to completely destroy the Amalekites, what that did is create this kind of, this internal war in him. And please follow me here because I am so positive that there's a number of people right now that are experiencing this internal war. Here's how it works. In Saul's day, this is the way that that nations sort of like elevated themselves. When you conquered a rival nation, you never killed the kings. You kept them alive. You see this all over the place in the Old Testament. You would keep them alive and usually do something terrible to them like gouge out their eyes or cut off their thumbs and big toes or something like that. But you kept them alive back in your home and you would kind of parade them around. You would show them off every time you had a feast or a festival because when you started collecting kings like Pokemon cards, you were no longer just a king. You were a king of kings. Now you were more than a man. Now you were an emperor. Now you were like a god. That's exactly how kings established themselves and made a great name for themselves. And it was the same thing with the cattle. And if you're in Saul's position, <clears throat> seems like a real simple thing. Just kill the cattle, Saul. If he kept that cattle alive, if he spares the best cattle and gives them to his troops, this is a day and age when, when eating meat like that is something that these guys might not experience but once a year. If, if you let these men that just l- literally put their lives on the line for you, if you let them just have a little bit of the spoils of war, they will love you forever. They will saddle up for you for the rest of their lives. They'll sing songs about your benevolence and your generosity and your majesty. And Saul is the type of guy who was absolutely desperate for that. And so when God came along and said, Saul, you are to completely destroy the Amalekites, including their king and including their cattle, really what happened was Saul was in a position where he could have only done what he was called to do if he was really locating his identity in God. The only way Saul would have been able to do this is if if the primary source of his value, his sense of self-worth, his glory was in his relationship with God. And so when you think about it that way, here's what happened. All God did is he put Saul in the position that he puts all of us in all throughout our lives. God put Saul in a position where he had to choose, okay, what matters most to you? What I think about you or what everybody else does? Or, or, Or maybe you want to state this differently. God put him in a position that would reveal what mattered most to Saul. And like I said, this is something that it's going to look different in all of our lives, but this is something that God's going to do for us over and over and over again all throughout our lives just to show us that you can go to church every Sunday. You can read your Bible every morning. You can say your prayers every night. You can, you know, say a prayer, walk an aisle, get baptized, you know, be a Christian for decades and yet still have something else serving as the foundation of, the, of your identity the center of your life, your your primary sense of self-worth. And again, for Saul, since the greatness that he had in the eyes of God was no longer the foundation of his identity, he's got to look to meet that need somewhere else. That 
is why he didn't obey God. That's what kept him from obeying God here. It's what kept him from being able to face himself when he was confronted about his disobedience, and ultimately, it is what literally ruined his life. And so what you're seeing in Saul's life, as is ironically so often the case, is that it was his desperate hunger for things like approval and respect and recognition and glory and significance and love and adoration and all that. It was his desperate hunger for those things that ultimately became the reason that he lost them. Now, when you understand Saul's life in those terms, anybody with a molecule of self-awareness in them realizes, okay, he's not so different than me. I was literally thinking about this when I drove in this morning. If I had to rename this series, I'd just call it Everyday Evil. Because we look at the, we, we talked about it last week. You look at Adam and Eve, I would have never eaten that fruit. What a bunch of idiots. You know, you look at Cain and Abel last week. Guy, inferiority complex, he's murdering his brother and saying, I'm not my brother's. What a psychopath. You look at Saul, you couldn't just kill a couple of cows? Was it really worth it to you? When you really get into these stories, you realize, oh, hang on a second. The same stuff that ruined their life exists in my heart. It's been that way since Genesis chapter 3. Because, and the reason for that, we all know what Saul knew. We know that we're small. We know that we lost some kind of glory for which we've been made, and we all tend to compensate for that exactly the way that Saul did, which is by looking out in the world for something that can only be found in God. So the question is, well, then what do we actually need? If that's, where this whole, if that's what the whole issue boils down to, what do we need? And I'll tell you, when I was first reading this story, what I was going to say is we need a Samuel, right? We all need a Samuel that can speak into our lives and help us see what we can't see. And I want to be real clear, we do need that. We absolutely need somebody on the outside of us that can help us see things we can't see. But please understand, the point of Saul's story is you can have a literal prophet of God in your life. You can have somebody that, that, that gets direct revelation from God, that God speaks directly to and through, standing in front of you, staring you in the face and telling you everything that you need to see, and you can still make a mess of your, of your entire life. There needs to be something deeper in us that can free us from this trap that, 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 that Saul fell into. What we need is what Christianity alone can offer us, which is an identity that doesn't depend on our performance. What we need is an identity that is so secure that it allows us, first off, to be able to do the hard thing when the hard thing and the right thing are the same thing. We need an identity that makes us so secure in ourselves that we're able to do what we know we have to do, even if it's, if it's going to cost us honor and glory and reputation in the eyes of the world. We need an identity that's so secure that it allows us to face ourselves and own our mistakes without it feeling like a psychological kind of death sentence. What we need is an identity that can be found exclusively by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. One of the unique things about Christianity, there's lots of unique things about Christianity, but one of the things that makes Christianity so unique is that in Christianity, you get an identity that is received rather than achieved. Meaning in Jesus, you're not put on trial every day because Jesus stood on trial for you. Only in Jesus do you get the verdict before the trial. Only in Jesus do you get the award before the performance because when you give your life to Jesus in that moment, now your identity is secure in God, and it doesn't depend on what you do or don't do. It depends on what Jesus has done for you. It doesn't depend on what's in your heart. It depends on what is in God's heart for you. That's the only thing that would have freed Saul from this. It's the only thing that will free you and I from this. So, you know, kind of conclusion to the matter here, the way I see it, there's really just two kinds of people that are listening to this teaching. 
you have on the one hand people who, you know, you hear about this, and maybe that sounds great to you, but at the end of the day, if you're being really honest, you've never experienced this, not personally, because you have never made the personal decision to give your life to Jesus. Maybe you're kind of at this place in life where, you know, God's, God's drawing you, and maybe you're getting interested in the Bible. You even find yourself praying from time to time. You're starting to come to church. Maybe that's a new thing for you. But if you were honest, even at this point, you're still on the outside looking in because you have not made the personal decision, okay, I'm actually going to trust Jesus enough to give my life to him, to follow him, to obey him. Or if that's not where you're coming from, I think this probably is where most of us are, you've, you've done that. You've, you've done that maybe decades ago. And yet, when you look at the life of Saul, you can admit that just like Saul, somewhere along the line, what Jesus says is true about you, what God says is true about you, stop being real to you. You've forgotten about it. And so just like Saul, you find yourself looking out in the world for something that can only be found in a relationship with God. Either way, wherever you're coming from, person one or person two, the conclusion to the matter is the same. What we have to do is we have to put on this identity that is available by grace through faith in the name of Jesus and live our lives out of that instead of dooming ourselves to this exhausting game of perpetually trying to be something that we know we're not. Jesus alone is the answer to that. And what I would love to do today, we're almost at the end, what I'd love to do today is end by giving you, you know, four techniques to get there, but unfortunately, as is so often the case with God, it just doesn't work like that. It's not a button you push or a lever, a lever you pull. But what I can do, and this is how I wanted to end this teaching, is I want to end today just by telling you a story of what it looks like when the identity that is available to you and I in Jesus becomes real. <clears throat> so it was 2015, this time of year, eight years ago now, I was teaching through Philippians. And we were in chapter two, and at the beginning of chapter two, Paul makes this really profound statement where he basically says that all human conflict stems from the fact that we are all, he uses a Greek word that literally means glory hunger. Paul is making this case that the reason that human beings have so much difficulty uh, getting along is because we're all starved for glory, and yet we're demanding that other people give us the glory that we're so starved for. And it doesn't take a Dr. Phil to realize that just doesn't work. It leads to all kinds of fights and emotional gridlock and all that kind of stuff. But if you keep reading in, in chapter 2, <clears throat> uh, in a really famous passage of Scripture, Paul tells us what the answer to that is, the only answer to that. And he says that Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped and held onto and used for his own advantage, but instead Jesus emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant, and he died for us on the cross, the most humiliating way possible. And the idea there is that Jesus, despite the fact that he had the glory that we're so desperate for, he gave that up for us so that we could find that glory in him. And to the degree that that becomes real to a human heart, to that degree, we stop needing other people to try to meet our need for glory because that need's met in Jesus and now we're able to live this life that the Bible calls Christianity, where we do for someone else what God through Christ has done for us. We lay our lives down for them. Anyway, a week after giving that teaching, a woman came up to me from our church, uh, and we had an exchange that stayed with me ever since. And, and we've arrived at the end of our time, so let me call the worship team up. <clears throat> she told me that when she heard uh, what Jesus had done for her as recorded in Philippians chapter 2, that, uh, and maybe this is something that a number of us have going on today, 
she said that she had been in the middle of um, a long and lengthy and unpleasant fight with two of her siblings. And, uh, and sure enough, it was exactly what Paul said it is. It was three people that were all starved for glory, demanding that somebody meet their need for that before they were willing to budge. And when relationships get there, I mean, that's where they go to die. So it was gridlocked. It was ugly. People weren't speaking. But she told me that when she heard that Jesus had infinite glory, infinite love and status and recognition and all the things that we're so desperate for, yet he gave all of that up for her so that she could find that in him, it completely freed her. And she went home and she told me she apologized to her siblings, which that's actually not the part that stayed with me. What stayed with me is she told me that she apologized to them even though she knew she was not in the wrong. She was not the cause of that fight. Uh, it's, I mean, you think about that. It's hard enough for some of us to apologize even when we know that we're wrong. She was able to apologize even when she knew that she wasn't. Her siblings had lots of things that they needed to work on, lots of things that they needed to own, apologies that they needed to make to her. But the point is, when she realized how significant she was in the eyes of God, when she realized how loved she was in the eyes of God, that the only two eyes in the universe that ultimately matter looked on her and said, you are my beloved daughter, my child in whom I'm well pleased. I delight in you. She didn't need that from anybody else anymore, and she was free to do exactly what followers of Jesus are called to do. She just laid her life down for the people around her. And so I tell that story to simply leave you with this one final thought. Only somebody who knows how great they are can voluntarily make themselves small. Those are the only people in existence that have the ability to do it. It's only people who know how great they are that can make themselves voluntarily small for others. The story of Saul, when you really zoom out from it and you boil it down, it's the story of someone who, who was tormented by his own sense of smallness, and so he ruined his life trying to prove how great he was. It cost him everything. And before any of us look down on him, we should admit that the same things going on in his heart are going on in ours. And the only hope that we have is if we see Jesus, the greatest of all of us, voluntarily becoming small for us so that we could be great in the eyes of God. Whether you need to see that for the first time or just the next time, that's got to be driven into our hearts over and over and over, and the gospel alone has the power to do it. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, at the end of this teaching, I just would ask that you'd make it real. I'm... I'm uh, just moved by the way that Paul prayed for the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 1 where he just asks them, he asks you on their behalf over and over again just that what they already have, what is already true about them would become real to them. And that's my prayer for, for me and for us as a community. Everybody listen to this this morning. Just that what you say is true of us would be more real to us, that we would know it in a more than intellectual way, that we would know that in Jesus, not because of what we do or don't do, but because of what he has done, we are loved with, with the love that we're really looking for. We have significance in, in the eyes that all, the only eyes that ultimately matter. There's our security. There's our significance. There's our identity. God, just help us to see it. Help us to understand what Saul could never understand, that what we're looking for can only be found in you. Help us to live out of that, Father. Let us be a community that simply knows who we are by grace through faith. In the name of Jesus, God's people said, amen.